Hey, Collaborist, I'm Ben Leroy. And I'm Jason Buckholtz. And you're listening to Collabracast. How's it going, Jay? I'm well. We've got uh, double beanies today. I know it's an audio medium, but we record this on a video app. And um, yeah, we're, we're both beanied up today. And the YouTube crew can see the double beanie app so it it is intended initially and originally to be an audio medium but we have expanded into a multimedia empire now speaking of which the beanie thing speaking of that i am currently trying to collect some data and some options that i'm going to run by you mr buckholtz but it would involve making for sale for people who would be interested, Collaborist or Collabracast beanies have the logo, and uh, people would be able to order those. Those of you who are in the especially harsh Midwestern winters, you might look for that. Or if you just want to be a stylish Bay Area dude like Buckholtz, you can get, get it there too. Uh, I'm trying to find a way for people to be able to to put the Collaborist and Collabracast logos on merchandise of their choice without us having to actually produce it in large quantities. People would, maybe it'll make a good holiday gift for people, but we'll keep you updated on that. But I'm intending to get a Collaborist beanie. I'd go for one of those for sure. For me, it's uh, less about stylishness uh, and more just about unruly hair and and an inability to make it to the barber as often as i probably should um, yeah so you know that's my it's my it's my my life hack people who are watching it drives people crazy in my real life but might notice that the ears a little bent the hats the beanies kind of pushing that out and i'll be like oh you got to fix that that you... was driving me crazy 30 seconds. <laughs> was it? Oh. Yes. I was like, dude, you got one ear in, one ear out. What's going on there, man? There's so uh the cover <laughs> of the minor threat album, Ian Mackay is wearing a hat and it's doing this. And so I have always just been like, Yeah, it's just kind of like the minor the minor threat hat thing. <laughs> but I'll go ahead and cover it up for now. Well, don't let me don't let my weird <laughs> hang-ups keep you from wearing your beanie high this is this is america you wear yeah your, you put your ears where you want them that's right i want to take this opportunity to also make sure that we say hey nanorimo participators we're still supporting you we're still cheering you on hope that's all going well i want to also take an opportunity we're recording this the day before thanksgiving and I just want to say that I'm thankful for everyone who's listened and who has joined us on this journey. We started Collaborist back in February, and it has been awesome. This is our 40th episode of the podcast. Today is the 40th episode, and I have never done a podcast that's made it 40 episodes and with regularity. And I'm so thankful to Jason that you are uh, such a wonderful co-host on this and that we have been able to have some really great conversations and we have worked with a lot of good clients this year 
And I am thankful for all of that. So if you're listening to this, either right when it drops or sometime in the distant future, just know that Ben is thankful for your presence. As am I, and same to you. And it would include anybody who's checked us out on the social medias and uh, interacted and sent comments and um, has anybody who's put any any energy at all into supporting us and what we do and listening and spending your time and and sending us your questions and ideas and and so on speaking of social media we've got one post over on instagram you guys that just keeps doing numbers and i don't know where it's spreading but i woke up this morning and I I get to check the social media stuff before Jason probably because it's early in the morning for me. But it's earlier in the morning for Jason. We had over 100 new likes on that post this morning, just this morning, and like three new followers on Instagram. And this is an Instagram post that we did that we filmed live on location in Capitola on the beach. And it just, it just keeps doing numbers. It's like at 13,000 views now and over a thousand likes. We're closing in on 14,000 views and just upwards of 1,500 likes. And I, you know, when I see those numbers, I'm just thinking about all the dopamine that that gives. But I'm also like, (laughs) if Jason and I were in the same town, like it might get dangerous because we'd be like, okay, now you're going to ride this BMX bike off this jump (laughs) and you're going to grab onto the tire swing. But the whole time you're doing that, you're going to be talking about present tense writing and about how I'm very nervous right now as I'm approaching this jump because I don't know what's going to happen, which is different than if I say, here's Jason in the ambulance and the BMX bike underneath this tree. So, yeah, we'll we'll have to figure out how to continue the cinematic magic, cinemagic and uh, and how to keep the Instagram fresh because people apparently are digging that. Looks like there's some new comments on that one too. So I think there's oh. some conversations to to take a look into there. Dopamine. Yeah, we we uh, captured some lightning in a bottle on that one. I'm, I don't know what the what the formula was, what the algorithm was. Over I think on it was- my. Over on my personal Instagram, um, so I do, I post a lot of like my hikes and kayaking and stuff. Um, that's at Jason D. Buckholtz, uh, for those who might be interested. But I, I went for a big hike this last weekend. I was on Mount Diablo and I, there are, there's a part of it. It's a lot of volcanic and seismic activity that created it. And there's some sandstone cliffs that have uh, caves in them. And I got in there. It was pretty early in the morning. Um, and I took a, a video f- of uh, the view out of one of these caves. And there's you can kind of see through a few different openings. And that one blew up. I don't know what, what it was, but that one is kind of in a similar arena. And just all like within a day, there were over 10,000 views. I just, who knows? Who knows how these things work and why? And why we are so subservient to them right and why it matters yeah (laughs) 
Now you said you get an extra year of life for every like. No, no, I, I don't. Right. Right. You say this will pay your electricity bill. No, that not that either. No, not that. Not that. Yeah. So anyway. Okay. We well, go ahead. Are talking about queries. We did our first part on queries last week, where we really focused on the fiction query. Today we're going to shift over to nonfiction proposals and talk a bit about how that works and what those are and kind of demystify the proposal process and the query process for a certain type of nonfiction author, which we will delineate. First, though, we did have a listener submitted question um, about manuscript wish list. And this is something that I don't have a lot of familiarity with, but you do, Ben, yes? I, yeah, I don't know that I have a lot familiar with, but for those who aren't familiar you might see the hashtag MSWL manuscript wish list on the Twitter or other social medias. And you might be curious, what does that mean? And you might see that an agent or an editor publisher has used that and they've given specific things like, I would love to see a book about a 23-year-old archaeologist who is traveling across some continent and is finding things and finds the meaning of life. I thought this was about finding lost civilizations, but it was really about finding the meaning of life. So some people will say, my existing book that I've been working on sounds like a good fit for this agent. And it's a way for people to see what what specifically and, and more exactly are agents looking for or publishers looking for. So some people might think that their book already exists that way. Other people might think to themselves, I could write a book like that. I'll write a book like that. And I will be able to then send it to this agent because this agent has essentially told me, this is the novel that I wish someone would write and then I can go out and write it. So that's good information. And you might see that too when people are doing um, pitches on Twitter. And the one thing that I would say about that, it's good information. It's interesting information. But I've also talked to people who have participated in things using hashtags like MSWL or PitMad. And um, I would encourage you to look at who is making these requests. If someone is asking to see your novel and they say that they're a literary agent or they say that they are a publisher, I would encourage you to look to see if these are people who can get you the results that you're looking for. And I don't mean that they win the lottery. I mean that they have an established track record of doing what it is that you hope that they can do for you. I have definitely run into people who have been very excited about getting a request for submitting their book to somebody. And then it breaks my heart by a degree to say, 
Yeah, but that agent isn't really an agent that anybody knows, or that agent isn't someone who's actually going to be able to sell your book. And it's an easy way for people to capitalize on an author's enthusiasm without having the requisite skill set or presence in the industry. And that can lead to disappointment and heartache. And so I would just say, be careful and check out who other clients are or other books that have been published and make sure that that's what you're going for. I will say that I, I, when the question came in, I took a look, there's a manuscript wish list website, which I think compiles some of the, these things that these agents are looking for. And I, I popped over there and there are some agent profiles that pop up and the very first one that came up. So this was my very first impression of this website was an agent that I know that I've worked with. She, uh, Andrea Somberg at Harvey Klinger, which is also the agent, the agency that represents me. Um, Wendy Levinson is my agent, but one of her colleagues there, Andrea, is someone who I've known for years um, through, through not personally, but through professional circles and have worked with her and know her to be a fine, upstanding agent. So, um, that's a, a small bit of anecdotal information. So I, you know, I popped open that website. It's like, oh, the first thing I saw was Andrea. And so uh, for, if, if whatever, <laughs> at least there's that. Yeah. So, yep. yeah, I would say overall, um, yeah, something to check out, something to add to your quiver of knowledge. Yes. Quiver of knowledge, indeed. Should we talk about some nonfiction querying? Not yet. I wanted to mention something that happened. So I, in in the course of my revisions this last week, speaking of quivers of knowledge, um, I had a little incident that I wanted to talk about. I, I it, it was informative for me. And this is a very niche this is going to be for 8% of our listeners. Maybe, maybe not. But here's what happened. I am revising a manuscript that is in, it's in multiple third person points of view. So this Instagram reel that we're talking about is about head hopping. It's about multiple third person. It's about how you handle those adjustments, shifting from one character to a next to the next not confusing your readers and so on. So I am writing a novel. It's in it's in multiple third person. For the most part, the the characters are all spread out geographically for the first three quarters of the book, seven eighths of the book. I'm now working towards. I'm in the last 40, 50 pages, and they're you know it's it's climax time it's act three times so they're all converging and i have a scene that i'm have been working on that is uh it's a it's an interaction between three characters and they're all viewpoint characters and i wrote this scene one way and then i was working on the revision and i've just been stuck with it it's just been really difficult to do so i've got these three characters one of them, you know, they all have two of them have secrets. One of them has a secret that she wants to share with one of the other characters. 
but not the third. Another one has a secret that he wants to share with both of them. Um, there are secret aspects to relationships that the third character doesn't know about. There are, you know, there's all these things going on in the scene. Um, and I have, I, I have just been working on it and I've been stuck. Like I haven't liked what has been coming out. It's felt flat. I haven't really been able to figure out what the hell is going on frankly, in, in technical terms. And then finally, I realized that I had the wrong. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a single scene and I have one character narrate the entry to it. And then another character in the middle. And then the third character at the tail end and there's backstory and they're each bringing in, you know, as they're converging, they're each bringing in different levels of backstory to bear on that moment. And then I realized that I was telling it from the wrong the wrong character's perspective. So the, the revelation that I had was that I, I the middle character is fine. The, I've got her telling the story that I need to tell in the, in the middle part. But the, the first and third characters, I was telling the opening part of the scene needed to be from the third characters and the ending of the scene needed to be from the first characters and i was thinking about how how i could have figured this out ahead of time and i was thinking well does it is it does it have to do with who has what at stake what where the conflict is you know all the standard answers like where's the conflict where's the tension who's got the most to lose at this and this and that and I don't think any of that would have worked in this case. I don't think any of those heuristics, any formulas, any any shortcuts would have worked. I think I just had to write it both ways. I just had to, to do it each way and come to that realization just kind of brute force. Or I was like, okay, let me write the beginning of the scene from this character and then I'll write it from the other characters and then I'll just see which one works best. And so I, I, you know, it's only through, and we've talked before about, we're talking about NaNoWriMo this week. People are cranking out the words and we've talked about why 50,000 words that you write in the course of a month is not a completed novel. And it's because of stuff like this. It's because that type of process doesn't allow you to take one scene and go through. And it's been frustrating. It's been like, I've been, it's been difficult and I've been stuck and I've, you know, I've been stuck to the point where like, I've been thinking I'm a, I'm a fraud. I shouldn't be doing any of this. I should just go work at a gas station. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then finally I was like, oh, that's what's wrong. But it's only through, only through a lot of time and a lot of trial and error and a lot of just brute force searching through my characters and their brains and their perspectives before the, the correct pieces fell in order. And I, I, I haven't, completed the revision i i just think that this is what's going to solve it and it might be that this doesn't even solve it but um I, I was trying to think about it was just a it was an interesting process for me it was an interesting learning experience to kind of see how this scene evolved and to realize that the only way through it was to just keep writing from all these different perspectives knowing that they weren't all going to stay in there but but doing it anyway just to just to see what would happen so 
I guess I guess if there is a, a, a moral of the story, if there's a lesson, it's that sometimes you just have to try a bunch of stuff um, and you have to do it in a way where you're not just casually drafting, but you're writing it as if it's going to be the final product. It was, you know, you have to put everything into each of those perspectives, each of those bits of the scene. Um, and then at that point you take a look at it and step back and say, okay, well this, this didn't work. So I'm going to toss this out and bring this back in try this over here. So. I, I'd love that discovery. I love that feeling of discovery. There are definitely times where in my own book, I've, there's a bit of knowledge that the reader needs to have. And I think, what are the different vehicles for getting this information to the reader? And in some cases, it could be that character one is telling character two. But sometimes there's so much knowledge associated with that that I worry it would be info dumpy and it would just be like a long like reader you should be paying attention to this so what i have done and i can think of a specific example that i was reminded of when you were talking about that is character one shares some knowledge with character two on the page but we as a reader know that there is a larger and longer conversation happening we don't get all of it we just know that it's going on. And then a year later, I have character two talking to character three and says, one time I was talking to character one and I heard this. And so it broke up all of this information that needed to be shared. It broke it up into multiple conversations throughout the book instead of just one, here is the thing that you should know thing. And, and so I often ask myself, what is it that I want the reader to know? And then I play out how are the, what are all of the different ways that I can get that information to the reader? How, who, who has that information to give to the reader and how could they share it? That's a whole nother podcast exposition. Let's put a pin in that and and come back to that because that is such an important thing. And that is one of the easiest mistakes to make. And that's something that I find myself as an editor talking about a lot um, is is exposition, expository dialogue. And, th and that's it's hard to do. But I think that that really makes a big difference in in raising the the level of, of a manuscript is if you can do that correctly yeah and we can talk about it later but one of the hard things to do about it is trusting the reader to fill in the blanks and giving a less than full explanation of something and allowing the reader to be like oh i if i assume this and i can also assume this and this and this and that's it's really hard not to want to be in your reader's ear saying, here's this other thing, but pay attention to this because this is really important too. Right. But trusting yeah. the reader is definitely a skill set. Yep. It's another another part of that same topic. One one other aspect of the discovery that I had, and this is something else that we've talked about, is this this the realization that I had 
did not come to me while I was sitting there on my computer. It happened on that hike. It happened when I was miles away from my manuscript and just giving myself time to walk quietly and think about stuff. And then that was that that was what I needed for that realization to to form and arise. So remember to, to shut it down and go for a walk, people. All right. Should we transition over to nonfiction in the querying slash proposal procedures? Yes. So last week we talked about querying for novels and literary memoir, which are processes that are converging and becoming very, very similar. For prescriptive nonfiction, so by prescriptive nonfiction, that would be like a how-to book. Let's say you're writing a business book or you're writing a, um, there was a, a a book that I edited a number of years ago for a doctor. And it was just like, here's how you clean your house. And, you know, these are, this is, this is how you make sure that your environment is not going to make you sick. And it was this whole comprehensive guide on, on how to clean, how to, how to, make sure that you stay healthy to preventative preventative things and so books like that those types of books are sold via the tool of the book proposal book proposals sold to a sold to publishers not to we're not talking about to end readers here we're talking about sold to publishers right sold to publishers uh and often via agents so if you as a as a nonfiction if you're writing a book like that, and this includes like a self-help book, um, how-to books, this this is how you, you would write a proposal and send it to your agent. The agent would take the proposal, send it to publishers trying to get you a deal. You can get a book deal. You can get an advance, all of those things without the manuscript even being complete, which is kind of a nice shortcut if you're if you're working in this genre and writing in this genre. So you can think of a proposal as a business plan for a book, and there are several subsections in it, but they fall really into two broad categories. And first category, obviously, is about your manuscript, and that will include a couple of sample chapters, and it will include a very detailed outline of your book. I've seen various levels of detail in in various proposals, but I would say that the minimum should be you have to have your concept of your book figured out well enough that you can write in detail about each chapter to about three quarters of a page, three quarters to a full page on each chapter. So if you have particular examples, if you have if it's the type of book where you have exercises or or lessons that you're teaching to your readers then those should be in, you should have thought those through clearly enough for those to appear in those chapter abstracts, those chapter summaries. The other part of the proposal is the business part. And do you want to, why don't you talk about that part a little bit? So the business part is making the assumption that your book is going to be in a bookstore, on a bookshelf, it's going to be sent to reviewers. It's going to be sent to librarians. 
And everyone needs to have an okay understanding of where your book fits into the marketplace of books that are about similar topics. And we want to see that there is an existing market for this kind of work. So as we've talked about in previous episodes, especially as it deals with query letters, we're going to want to see comp titles. You're going to want to see who's already got readers excited about those kinds of books. So you'll have to find books that are in the same area and then look up their sales history. You want to find books that are, again, published in the last two to three years so that they're relevant to today's market. Although I feel sorry for people in today's market because the pandemic has thrown off a... Uh, uh, what normal is, trying to understand normal. But you also want to, and this is different from fiction, in that you're going to need to find data that talks about the market beyond just comp titles. This is an emerging trend among youth, 18 to 24. These kids are buying books at this rate, and we can look at market trends by some organization that suggests that this is a growing market and that it is projected by 2028 to be the leading source of information for this demographic. That kind of granular detail that supports the case for why this book is needed and then figuring out why you are the person to write it? What is your platform? Are you already the head of an organization that's doing this work? Have you been doing this work for 10 years and this is your experience and you're able to bring in other experts who you've met along the way who will lend credibility and credence to what you're doing? Uh, so like who's going to, who might review this book? Who might write a foreword for this book? Who is going to lend their social capital to endorsing this book? All of those things go into it. So we can establish that a book has a market, but we also need to establish that that market is going to recognize you as an authority who can write about this. And then that that authority and that book are going to provide to you a platform to sell books. So it may be over bookstores. It may be that you get reviewed, not just uh, like this is a case where you might get reviewed in somewhere like Publishers Weekly, and that's cool, but you also need to be reviewed in newspapers and consumer magazines where people are going to read about this book and say, I want that book. I'm going to order that book. Um. It's also an opportunity to do speaking engagements for organizations or communities that are interested in whatever that particular topic is. So How to Clean Everything, which is also the name of a propaganda album, but How to Clean Everything, you you can have that talk at the public library and you're going to get people from the community who are like, yeah, my house needs to be cleaned. I'm going to go listen to this expert. And then while you're there speaking about it, they're going to say, I really like this person and I want to buy a copy of this book. So I have it as a reference later on when I get home and I see the dust and I know that things need to be cleaned. All of that is the critical businessy side of things. And I know a lot of people who are aspiring 
nonfiction writers who have really good ideas and key insights. And that one of the things that gives them a lot of dread is establishing all of the businessy side of things and being able to prove that they are a person who should be writing this book. That can be daunting and it it does take time, but there are ways to do it and, and we can help. It's one of the things that we do here incidentally, but yeah, another component of that, you mentioned the platform. It's, it's, it's your outreach. It's the author's ability to make sure that people know about that authority. And a lot of that these days is a social media platform. It can be professional associations. Um, it can be, you know, there are, different trade organizations for instance i've i've worked on a number of books that are written by therapists written by therapists for for other therapists or for or for clients and there are different organizations newsletters conferences speaking opportunities all those things and and the more plugged in you are to those sorts of networks Agents and publishers will see those as different ways that you can spread the word, different ways, different channels that you can use to share the information about, about your book, places you can post, places that you can run ads, just different different audiences that you could put your book in, in front of. We do a lot of work on proposals. We're if that's something that you're that you're thinking about doing and and that you know at the risk of turning this into an infomercial, there are a lot of resources out there to help you to get acquainted with a proposal. And a lot of people, a lot of writers are quite daunted by this because it it really is a a it's a business function. And we're like, well, I'm I'm a creative, I'm a writer, I'm a storyteller, and that's fine. But when it comes to when it comes to nonfiction, you also have to be in the business of of your topic. And the proposal is where you prove that you know something about that. And that's just something that that publishers require these days. They have their marketing departments, they have their publicity teams, they have levels of outreach but they aren't going to do 100% of it. They they want to know that you are bringing something substantive to the table. There are a lot of avoidable car wrecks at the intersection of art and commerce. And that's just a, it's a thing to know is that like people do get the like, I'm an artist. I don't want a business. Okay, but you can business if you have to. And if, especially if it's in service of getting your art into the world. Right. If you want to be able to have an income from that, if like if you're doing fine, if you've got a trust fund, if you've got a, a job that pays all the bills and this is just something you're doing in your free time, then fine. But if this is something that you're looking to make into part of your living or all of your living, then then you have to treat it as such. You have to uh, approach it as as a business. You have to you have to be entrepreneurial about it. There are yeah. lots of great proposal templates online. A quick search will reveal those. And I think just, just looking at that, and and there are some that are quite detailed and and really tell you what to do, it can pretty quickly demystify the whole process. People do get stuck on that step. You were talking about the marketing and coming up with numbers. And so for instance, you know, the, according to this this group, this the market for this is such and such in projected to be such and such in America by whatever the date is. 
And, you know, those are things that are require a little more digging, a little more research, um, a little more, a little more artistry in terms of the numbers that you pick and, and making a case to an agent or a publisher that, that this is the relevant, these are the relevant statistics for, for you and your project, but help us out there. Um, you can always give us a call, drop us an email and, uh, we'll be happy to talk to you about it and help you get situated and ready to, to attack the process. Um, doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be super difficult, but you do have to have last week we talked about novelists and, and literary memoirists as needing to have that manuscript all the way complete before you can complete a competitive proposal, you really have to have your ideas figured out. You don't have to have written the manuscript, but you have to know what's going to be in your manuscript. You have to know what's going to be in every chapter. And so it, it requires a level of planning. And if you haven't written the manuscript already and you want to do the proposal first, which is a very common thing to do, and it's something that I really advise, but it does require a level of planning and outlining and forethought that isn't required if you're some people just wing it and write a book and and they may do some revisions later but for a proposal you really have to have a a very solid very thorough blueprint ahead of time all right uh is that is that it as far as the nonfiction proposal goes I think so. All right. Well, I want to uh, thank you again for listening, everyone. And if you feel inclined, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Get engaged in the YouTube comment section. I also just kind of want to put a call out to say that if you or someone you know is good with SEO and optimizing just content and trying to get the word out. We are looking for some assistance. If you are someone who does that work and you have a novel or a writing related thing that you could use some help with, we would be glad to do a trade of services. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it from here. I just want to thank everyone again and again and again. Same here. Much, much gratitude to you all, especially if you're still listening. <laughs> Extra gratitude if you yeah. make it to the sign off. If you're interested in uh, the SEO slash whatever stuff, send an email to info at collaborist.org and just say something along those lines in the subject line. And we'll get back to you. For story. For community. Collaborate. Gratitude. Gratitude.